Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One, a two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> Another beautiful day on the Victor Bravo Golf Course. The sun is shining. The birds are about, and there's a sudden pause in the crowd. Michael Michelson steps up to the tee box. 15th hole here, drivers recommended. <laughs> oh, is he a caveman? Because it's suddenly clubbed that one. What do you reckon, George? <laughs> I mean, did he hit that with the dictionary? Because that was a terrible read. <laughs> G'day and welcome. This is Golf. Andrew Dano is my name, and it is my pleasure to talk today to Craig Parry. Turned pro in 1985, 23 career victories. Uh, two in the US, six on the European Tour, four in Japan, one in Asia, one in Canada, and 13 on the Australasian Tour. He's won the Australian um, Order of Merit three times, the European Order of Merit. He's had third and fifth. 13th in the Masters, was leading after 54 holes. Third in the US Open. In the Open, the Open Open, fourth place. I mean, he really is one of the stalwarts of the game from certainly when when I was growing up and someone I used to love watching play. I'm very excited to have him on the uh, the program. I've Google stalked him and that's pretty much where our conversation began. So as I say, a true pleasure to have one of the greats of Australian golf. This is Craig Parry. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. We caught up on Zoom and I, um, gee, where did we, we started uh, with me embarrassingly admitting to fanboying him and, um, and finding him on, on the Google. So Craig, I've been Googling you uh, just, you know, it's, I don't know, do you ever Google yourself? Because it's really interesting what you find. Sometimes. Um, I don't do it all that often. And, you know, the, the people that make comments, sometimes it could be nasty, so I don't even bother going there. And that's why it took me a long time to get on Instagram. Yeah. And it was really my son that enticed me to get on it, and he more or less does the Instagram account because – I don't need to hear what someone else's negative comments are all about. And okay, you know, it's it's a, it's interesting you say that because so I, I I'm not talking about that. I'm talking like so I just watched your playoff at uh, at Doral with um, Scott Verplank and and that shot. So holding your second shot on 18 to to win it, and I was like, oh, I forgot. I just like 
How is that? I mean, that was one of your two one of your two victories in the US, and you've won like twenty three times around the world. You, you, your your history in golf is phenomenal, really, isn't it? Uh, I can look back at it now and go, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, um, coming out of the western suburbs of uh, Melbourne, and um, you know, a lot of my friends obviously didn't have the opportunity that I had to to go and play professional sport. Um, and have a long career in a, in a sport that I loved. And, uh, you know, I think I did the right thing in playing golf. Yeah. See, Sunshine doesn't really stack up as one of the great sporting suburbs. One, sorry, one of the great golfing suburbs, does it? Not really, but it actually the school that I went to in, in high school was uh, made famous in the movie The Castle, the Sunshine Tech. That was actually the school <laughs> that I went to. Okay. So that was probably the most famous thing to come out of uh, Sunshine. Yeah, so do you ever get back there? Do you sort of, I mean, I know you live in Sydney now, so. I, I'm actually doing uh, some more uh, work at Sunshine or Mount Derriman Golf Club. Yeah. I, I helped move them across the road on the ring road um, many years ago, and we're going to make a, a few alterations to the golf course to uh, allow them to get some a bit more money and, and sell one of the holes off. And, uh, you know, I'm involved in that as well. So I'll be hopefully down there by the end of the year. Well, who knows what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, who knows. It's interesting. I don't know how, but somehow I follow someone on Instagram who plays at Mount Derriman Golf Club, and it looks beautiful. And 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 yeah. I should point out as well that I know you've done some work at Wakehurst, which is around the corner from me. That's on Sydney's northern beaches. Which and I spoke to one of their members the other day, and they said it's just it's off its head. So let's let's get to the course, um, the course changes and um, development and design. We'll get there later. Yep. First of all, so how did you go from being in Sunshine to one of Australia's premier players? Well, I, I, I grew up playing at Sunshine, Medway and Torquay. Mudway. Uh, summer, yeah, I'd go down to Torquay <laughs> and, and play down there in summer. Yeah. And um, Dad used to work for ICI Explosives and he was moving all around the country and he had the opportunity to move to Western Australia and, and be in one region, the southwest region of WA. And... That was enticing to have dad at home all the time and uh, rather than being off, you know, traveling interstate. So we went to WA. I played the schoolboy series over in there for Victoria and I played at Royal for Mantle. Yeah. And that was a golf course I ended up joining. And I joined a really strong golf club in, in Royal for Mantle. And that meant that if I played well at Royal for Mantle, that I was going to get in the state teams. And, and obviously the junior team was the first part. And I got in that one very early. And um, then I played state golf as well as soon as i went over to wa i was given an opportunity and on all of a sudden i was away okay so were you was it like part of your plan as a kid did you were you looking at you know the the tour and watching golf on tv and probably just the majors they would have been showing then and, and going that's that's what i want to do yeah it, it's look i wanted to be a professional golfer uh at about age 13. yeah and it didn't really necessarily have to be a tournament player I just really wanted to be a golfer. I love putting on grips on golf clubs and, you know, sanding back the, the old wooden driver heads and lacquering them up and, you know, doing the binding. A lot of people yeah. wouldn't even know what binding is. But, um, you know, being able to do that with my hands, that's, that's what I really loved. And, you know, it wasn't until I got a little bit later and I, and I started to realise, yeah, I'm not too bad at this. So I might have to go a little bit further with it. And, now, I got to about 16 years of age and, and I made the Victorian schoolboy team and that's when you realise, okay, I'm all right. Uh, I'm playing up against the, 
the best players of my age interstate and um, you know one thing led to another and moved to WA and I practiced really hard and turned pro. And is the practice the secret do you think or have you got something else going on? Uh, the volume just went on you then. Oh, okay. So. Is the is the practice the secret or is there something else going on? Uh, well, there's a lot of different factors. There's a, a will, a desire. Um, you have to practice harder than anyone else. And that was one of my um, go-to um, things that I needed to have in the back of my mind. You know, if there's someone else than the rest of the world practicing harder than me, they were going to be better than me. Yeah. So I really had to make sure that I was practicing as much as I possibly could. Uh, I, I, when I arrived over in WA, I, I did a pre-apprenticeship for carpentry and joinery at the Fremantle Tech. And uh, I was one of the older kids to actually come into the, the, the TAFE there. And I'd actually made the WA state team, the, the junior team. And I had to go and actually play in, in the holidays in the state team versus um, go and do work experience. And they weren't too happy with me going off and playing state golf and <laughs> yeah. you know, missing my work experience, which is, which is obviously part of the TAFE program. And um, I had to get my parent mum to come in and say, look, you know, he wanted to play golf. And <laughs> the principal at the time, he said, look, you know, there's not too many golfers that are really um, done well for themselves. you got Terry uh, Gale and Graham Marsh and, you know, there's not too many golfers that make a, a really good living from it. And I said to mum, look, I'll go and practice harder than everyone else. And, you know, I was given the, the backing of my parents and, um, you know, went off and, and practiced my tail off and right. so I so, could actually prepare for professional golf. So that's interesting. That was possibly one of those sliding doors moments where, you know, your parents could easily have said, look, your TAFE teacher's right. I mean, he is a TAFE teacher. He knows stuff. And <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wasn't that lucky? Oh, look, oh, look, you have to be lucky in professional sport and that was one of the moments that mum and dad backed me yeah. and I, I was actually really wanting to play golf. I mean, I did applied science in, in, in Melbourne and then I wanted to be a carpenter when I went to Western Australia, but, you know, things just changed and my golfing started to improve and I was making WA team and in the Australian team with Brad Ogle, we were playing in two-man teams. And back in those days, Australia were not going to go to the World Cup golf um, because South Africa were involved in the apartheid. So we weren't going to go to Venezuela and, you know, I was going to wait around for another eight years to play World Cup golf for Australia. And, you know, my professional career would have been going out the window and yeah. I really had nothing to do other than play golf. So you know, better do it pretty good. Okay. Um, on the representative side of golf, Three Presidents Cups. I know you played the Dunhill Cup, which would have been a huge highlight in that was '99, wasn't it? Yeah, I played in probably four or five Dunhill Cups. Yeah, and but you won in '99. Yeah, yeah, a it, it, lot of fun. Um, you know, anytime you get to represent Australia, they, you know, you, you're pretty proud and, and chuffed. You're in a, a team representing the whole country because mm. a lot of the time we're just representing ourselves and, and going away and playing professional tournaments but you know in the back of our mind we were always you know Australians represent Australia really yeah and so um when you look at the Olympics so I mean what what are your thoughts on the Olympics in golf here you've got these guys who have more money than God you know like they've just got they've literally got everything 
should they be the ones playing in the, the Olympics? It's a bit of a loaded question, I guess. It, it, look, I'll take it back a little bit. Um, I'm a member at Concord Golf Club. I played golf with John Coates. Yeah. And I had to ask Tiger the question many years ago, would he uh, want to play golf in the Olympics? And at that point, Tiger didn't want to play golf. And that's why we didn't have golf in the Olympics for the 2000. Um, because Tiger said, well, look, a major is more important than an Olympic gold medal. And then he changed his mind after after uh, tennis being involved and seeing what was happening with other sports. And, okay. and, and that's where it come from, why golf wasn't in the Olympics in Australia. But going forward, golf should be in the Olympics and it should be the best players in the world that are playing. And it should mean, you know, this is really special. It's an unusual opportunity to have once every four years to win, you know, the biggest event in, in yeah. um, sport. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe the, the Olympic gold medal should be considered bigger than the majors, given it is once every four years. And you really, maybe in a career, you might have one or two or three chances to have a crack at it. I hadn't thought about it that way. I was thinking maybe it should be the best amateurs get to play, but, you know, I think you make a very, very good point. Yeah, no, I really do think it should be the professionals. You want the best in every sport to be at the Olympics. Yeah. Um, you, you really don't want to lower it in any level whatsoever. Um, the, the Olympics are the pinnacle of every sport. Okay, so where do you put them at the um, the majors then? And your majors history is is really good. I mean, you know, third in the US Open, yeah, your best was a fourth in the in the Open Open. Although I just was reading an article that was saying that, you know, if not for an errant drive on the 12th hole, you know, it could could have, should have been yours. Yeah, it, it's easy to look back at and yeah. say, you know, you should have done this and that and what have you. But, you know, it, it wasn't to be. I, I, I played well. I love playing in major championships. Yeah. Uh, the Open Championship was one of the ones that I really did get myself up for and practice extremely hard. Not to say I didn't practice hard for the others, but... The, the open really did suit my game, you know, use all of the contours around the golf course and, and control your ball in, in the air. And that's what you have to do at a British Open. And um, whereas Augusta, the, the golf course didn't really suit me. And even though I played really well in 92, um, Cedar Green, I played really well, didn't putt very good in the last round. I had three, three putts, a three putt of three, four and five, and I was playing the couples and, you know, just that opportunity, you know, Fred's ball went into the, the creek on, on 12 and, and stayed out of the water, which was absolutely amazing. Um, what had happened is the day before we had a, a, a lot of rain and the, the creek had actually risen, so the bank had gone really soft and we come back on the Sunday and now it's a soft bank and his ball actually went into the, the, the bank on the hazard and actually just popped up right on the top of where the, his plug mark was and, you know, my ball was only about three foot away. Yeah, uh, birdie, and if his ball goes in the water and I'm holding my birdie, all of a sudden you've got a three-shot swing and you're right in there. So yeah. it's those ifs and buts and kudus and, and you know, you just got to cop it on the chin and go, okay, get to the next one. How how long does it take to learn to cop it on the chin? Probably a lifetime. <laughs> so glad I just said that. Yeah, because it's like... Uh, I mean, do you, like, I don't know, you, you know, I know um, Paul Gowan, you know, you ask him sometimes about the, you know, throwing the the, the dime the at the ball and it's just like, 
he, he, I don't know if he likes or doesn't like talking about it, but he's probably sick of talking and thinking about it because it's been one of those things. I could have been a winner on the US tour. And yeah. then, alas. Yeah, it's one of those things. You, you Many years ago when I was playing my, I think it might have been my first or second event, I was in the player's marquee and I was watching a playoff between Magnus Pearsons, I think Stewie Jin for the Tassie Open. Yeah. And Baker Finch actually said to me something that was really stayed with me for many, many years is watch what they do under pressure because when you get under pressure, you're going to do exactly the same thing as what they do. And he was 100% right. You know, what they do with their mannerisms, how they actually prepare to play in a playoff or, or just going down the stretch of a, a tournament you really have to watch what other players do and be very observant because everyone does the same type of things. And it happens at Augusta every year. So would you, <laughs> so would you, does he, would, did, did that mean to watch people when they were, when you were playing against them under pressure? I'm trying to think for the amateur golfer and playing a club championship yeah. or a, you know, even a, a good last four holes when you think you're going well. So watch actually yeah. watch the mistakes they make. So you don't make the same mistakes. Is that what it means? Yeah, you've got to be very observant. Um, observant in the fact of what other people do because you're going to do exactly the same thing and it'd be observant on what you do as well. Know what your strengths are and know what your weaknesses are. Um, my, my strength was I could only um, hit it left to right, but my weakness was trying to play right to left. So when you're coming down the stretch, don't try and play right to left. Use your strength. Hit right. it left to right, aim a couple of metres left of the flag, and let it drift into the where the target was. And if it overcut, well, and it went a little bit right of the target. And, and I haven't only that one shot was actually an advantage, not a disadvantage. Did you think it was a disadvantage at the time? Sometimes when you're playing certain golf courses, hmm. um, where the holes went right to left and you, you're trying to get it into a left-hand flag at the back of a green, or the hole might have gone right to left and, you know, you might have got 30, 40, 50 yards extra run by the ball running right to left and all of a sudden you're hitting more club into the green because you've cut it against the slope. So yeah, there are times where you, you feel as though, look, it'd be nice to have that other shot. But looking back over many, many years of just hitting it left to right, I think it is an advantage just to play one way. Okay. Um, just, just on the Masters, so you were leading after 54 holes. So, no. so what's that night like? <laughs> you know, what's that Saturday? Because at that point, still no Australian had won. You know, like that was, and 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 does that weigh heavily on you as a as a golfer and as an Australian? You already said you know to represent your country is something. So that was, I mean, that's representing your country. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, no one had won the Masters. Norman had got very close uh, a few times. However. You know, it was just one of those things. We we had three holes to finish, or four holes to finish. Uh, I played with Ian Woosnam in the third round. And because we had the rain delay on the Saturday, I went to bed uh, around about the lead on that Saturday night. But we still had four holes to finish on that, oh, okay. that Sunday morning. And we had to come back early and, and finish those holes. I think I played them one under for the last four holes to have the, the lead after 54 holes and play with couples. And Finchie played the group in front of me with Raymond Floyd. If both Finchie and I had played together, I think one of us actually would have played well enough to win the tournament. But yeah. It was one of those things, you know, the cards didn't fall our way and, uh, you know, Fred Couples ended up winning the, the Masters. 
Right. And so Fred Couples appears to be the coolest, most level, easygoing. I'm going to guess he's not. <laughs> well, you imagine yourself in a, in a major uh, yeah. coming down the stretch. You know, anyone's going to be uptight and not be relaxed and mm. it's just the way it is. And, you know, he, he said something to me going up the eighth hole. He said, wouldn't you love to have a tape recorder to replay to the spectators on what they were actually saying? And none of that come out later on. And you just go, well, it is what it is. He said it. I know he said it. And um, because the spectators were actually quite vocal. Uh, and, you, you, uh, and you got a really hard time, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I got a hard time, especially when moving, when I'm on the, on the green ready to putt and mm. they're all moving to get to the next hole. I can understand they want to go and watch their, their hero play. And, you know, if I go to the footy or the cricket, I want my team to play well or you know, win the, the game. And um, it's just like the spectators. They, they'd come there early on that Sunday. It was a warm day. They started drinking early. Mm. And by the time we teed off, they were well and truly on their way to having too many beers out in the golf course. And <laughs> the following year, I was actually at the international dinner. I sat next to the, the marketing sales for alcohol and head of security. And I said, right, what happened? And they wanted to know. They were actually, they, they, closed off the beer sales an hour earlier, they were going to close them off altogether if it hadn't improved that next year, right. uh, back in 93. And, um, so what did, what, what did happen? What, what, what were they saying? Oh, they, they, they were just, they were clapping when I'd have a three putt and have a bogey. Um, yeah. You know, just little things like that. And I'm, I'm, we were on the 17th tee, ready to play off the 17th tee. And one of the spectators actually come up to, myself and Wisdom and said, why don't you let an American win? Because Wisdom was the defending champion. Right. And Wisdom told him in no uncertain terms what to do. So, uh, you know, it was just, they, they, wanted their, they wanted their own to win. And yeah. after the tournament, Davis Love actually come up to me and he said, look, it's not the crowd versus you. It's just the way the crowd is with Fred Couples because yeah. the same thing exactly happened to him at the LA Open. And, um, you know, it was nice of uh, Davis to come up and say, look, you know, don't, don't take it personal. Okay. Um, is there that sense of, I mean, well, I guess what, what is the sense of camaraderie between the nations at the big American? I mean, because I mean, I'm going to guess that doesn't happen at, the, at the, the Open, you know, like that's the one thing I love about the Open is that the crowd just, they just, they clap. They don't scream. They go, you know, and it's reflected yeah, in the commentary. They're, they're, and Yeah, they're polite. That mm. They appreciate the shot that's been played. Mm. They, they appreciate the difficulty of the shot being played. And it doesn't matter what country you come from, mm. that they will applaud the shot that, that's been hit. And if it's a good shot, they'll applaud. If it's a poor shot, they won't say anything. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that, that's the difference between playing a, a major in the UK and more or less playing it in America. You know, you've got three majors in America. It's very difficult sometimes to play in America uh, up against the crowd as well. Um, yeah. The only real time I had it other than the Masters was the US Open, but I'd come from behind. So I was so far behind. I was, I think I was third last group and, um, you know, come from having really no chance, I played a really good back nine on that Sunday to, to get in with having a chance um, at Boulder Stroll. Yeah, that's the year you came third. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. And so what's that feeling like sitting in the clubhouse going, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, look, you practice all your career to get yourself in those, those positions. So when it happens and when you're in the moment, you're just doing what you, you, you've prepared yourself for. Yeah. And, and, and that's really what a good golfer will do. They'll, they will prepare for that occasion. It's like the, the athletes going to the Olympics. They will prepare for that one occasion to make sure that when they're ready, they're going to fire with the, the, the best of their own ability and be prepared to go out and then play. Okay. So does that mean you don't get to enjoy the experience as much as, say, we do as, as an audience? Yeah. You, you can't really um, get too excited because you have to have a, the emotions of being level-headed mm. um, because if you got excited after every birdie, and then the next time you have a par or a bogey, then you, you'd be deflated. So you can't have that in professional sport. Right. You, you've just got to get on to the next shot, you know, that one shot that worry about what you can actually change rather than what's happened. Okay. I heard an interesting um, thought the other day from someone saying, um, don't forecast what's going to happen, but react to what has happened. I think that's close because yeah, he said if you know I, if you go and shoot if you say i'm going to shoot six under today and you shoot six under after nine holes then you go whoa what am i going to do now yeah i i think you you, you can't even get to that point of of getting too excited after what you've done for nine holes the next shot you've got to play that's the only shot you can actually have any influence over so that's the one you have to actually be prepared to play um, okay. You have to get rid of your, your bad shots quick and you have to get rid of your good shots not as quick because you have to rely on that positive, okay, I hit a really good six iron on the last time I had this club or I hit a, a really good four iron into the green and, and did what I wanted to do. It reacted how I wanted to do or, or putting, you know, that visualisation going into the hole. You don't ever want to see it, you know, not going into the hole. Yeah. So golfers have got to be careful on what they Remember, get rid of the bad shots really, really quick. The bad rounds really quick. Mm. The good rounds, keep in the back of your mind and going, you know, I'm, I can play. And you've always got to use that psychology. Okay. When you putt, do you, and when you're putting well, do you see a line or do you, I mean, do you see a, a point, the apex? Like what, what do you see that makes it work really well for you? Yeah, I'm one of those putters um, that pick a point to the side of the hole if it's breaking. So if it's two inch right to left putt, you know, from 15 feet, I will actually pick the spot two inches right of the hole. I won't pick the apex on the actual line of the putt um, because I, I found it was always easy to pick at the, the, the distance that it needed to go. And that that's what I felt as though was the best way for me to putt. Oh, okay, so you'd go. Uh, unless, it was, unless it was a real breaking putt, over a long distance where I would pick the, the distance I was going to aim it to the side of wherever I was aiming. Okay, so you're always hitting, so in your mind, you're always hitting a straight putt. It's just two inches to the right. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah so that way I'm not really thinking about my stroke. All I'm doing, I'm, I'm actually feeling in my hands how far I've actually got to hit that putt. And that was the best way for me to putt. I, I tried other different ways, you know, picking spots just in front of where my ball was that, you know, might have been a, 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 like a mark on the green, uh, might have been a 
dull mark or might have been a ball mark or whatever. But I never putted any good that way. Right. When you see, I mean, it's sort of makes me think of the AFL and this new style of, you know, the sidekick for goal. And 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 putting's a similar sort of thing, but you know, the you, the, the long putter, the the claw, the the hinge, the all these things. When you see someone changing something to make themselves go better, do you do you know, do you wonder about their mental state or do you do you get excited about what's going on or um, depends on what team. If it, if it's my team, the Western Bulldogs, I don't want them to be. <laughs> oh, what about the other night? Oh my god, I break for Melbourne. I nearly died. Uh, we, we're we're going all right. We, we've got good backup coming through, and uh, yeah. I think we're going to have a good final series between us. And mm. it's um, you know, like a, for example, a player like Aaron Norton, who, who's going through the ups and downs. If I was actually in the back of his mind, saying, "Look, you know." Just count one, two, three, and then kick it. Just make yeah. it really, really simple. You know, pick something out a, a long way away. When I'm playing golf, if I'm driving down a fairway, I pick something as far as away in the distance so I can actually really zone in on that point. And that's all I'm thinking of. I'm not thinking of technique. I'm not thinking of anything else. I'm thinking of just a really clear thought. Yeah. I'm going to kick it that. I'm going to hit it at that point. I'd say to Aaron, pick something out in the back there, close your eyes, and then go. <laughs> Just make it really simple. Yeah, well, it's, it's, isn't it interesting that golf's just not, it's just like the least simple game in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of demons in the back of the brain. Yeah, all right. Hey, just on the demons um, and the demons in the back of the brain, you, you, you played a really significant part in one of the great mental explosions well from the outside it looked that way with um with Vanderbilt in the in the open in 99 so what I mean the the round was fine like the whole way for 17 holes it looked like a pretty normal round of golf what was it like for you on the 18th when um when Jean Vanderbilt just blew up yeah what the commentators didn't actually say um, when they were doing the commentary, because they're in a booth, yeah. it was actually raining. It was a slight drizzle of rain, and it was probably blowing about 10 to 15 mile an hour into our face. So we're playing a really long par four and the, probably the most difficult par four in championship golf. And, and I heard commentators say he should have used three wood off the tee so he didn't hit it near the burn. But... If he hit three wood off the tee, he mightn't have carried all the thick rough. And his mistake was where he actually hit it was to hit it far enough down the fairway, which he did the right thing. But the problem was with his next shot, because he was coming diagonally at the green, there was out of bounds just to the left. There was the burn in front of the green. It was the, the bunker on the right-hand side of the green. The flag was over near the bunker. So he couldn't go left, and he had to get enough club to get over the water which he did a year to two iron and landed in the grandstand. The only problem was it, it hit the, the upright of, of the um, the grandstand and it bounced back across the, the hazard. And I went across after I, I'd hit my second shot into the bunker and I actually seen the mark on, on the, um, on the post. If you think about two round objects hitting each other, absolutely perfect. You know, he, he was really unlucky. So hang on, and, when, it, when you say it hit a post, it didn't hit the it's, grandstand. It's the upright in the grandstand, yeah. What, like a flagpole or something? 
No, it was actually the upright of the uh, the fence on the on the front of the grandstand. Okay. So you got a round object and a round object being the golf ball hitting each other, and it goes across the other side of the, the hazard, and the um, water hazard is so just in front of the green. The rough was wet, and it's a long rough. So anytime you hit it in that long rough, the club will uh, grab around the, the club head, and you know he'll he'll hoik it off to the out of bounds, and then he'll have to drop it in the same position again. It was a really difficult hole and, you know, nothing went right for him. In hindsight, he should have just grabbed a 9-9, hit it up the fairway, 9-9 on the green, and he would have been fine. Okay. When you're, but when you were watching it, so that, I mean, it's really, look, it's really interesting because there's a great podcast, the, the Open Podcast Series, and he talks about it and he said that his ball was actually above the water, but by the time he got was, to yeah. his ball... It was below, below. So when you know, and 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 the commentators going Jean 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 Jean, no, you know, like, like it was. So what was it like for you? That were you watching, going, mate, don't do it. Well, for for me, when I arrived at my ball, I could see the ball was out of the the the, um, the water, mm. and it was sitting in the sand, and it was far enough back to play. But he took so long to get to his ball. Mm. and get down in and take his shoes and socks off. If it was me, I would have jumped in there straight away and wouldn't have worried about getting wet and I would have played it straight away. And the ball was, you know, it was playable. You could definitely play it, but the tide was coming in so quick yeah. and his ball was oscillating and it was actually going down and yeah. it was getting covered by the water. So it, it was just one of those things of he was really unlucky. Do you do you as, as an opponent, and you were pretty well out of the torn out of the the chance yeah, of winning I, at that point do, what 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 do you do spiritually for for them do you die for them do you but yeah <laughs> this i mean yeah look look i, I was pretty peeved because i'd um made a double on the the previous hole i made a, a double a triple and a, a bogey on the back nine mm. and i knew that uh, paul Laurie and justin lennon were in the clubhouse and i'd blown my chances and and Jean was so far ahead, he should have, he was going to win. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden it, it turned into mayhem. And, right. you know, when he hit it in the bunker next to me uh, and I hold my bunker shot, I, I just said, <laughs> yeah, well, said yeah, follow me into the hole. Yeah. And he hit a pretty good bunker shot out to, you know, five feet or whatever it was. And, you know, he had to hold his putt. And then, you know, lo and behold, he, he held, held his putt, which is fantastic, but, you know, he just blown so many shots coming down that final stretch. It was nearly impossible that he was going to win the Open. It was all the, either going to be Justin Leonard or Paul Laurie. Right. And so for, for it, in your – you were headless anyway because you, you're you already lamenting oh, yeah. what you'd lost. Yeah, that's right. You couldn't give and a Jack shit. Just come, oh, bad luck, mate. Jack Newton actually come up to me and said, look, this place actually owes us because we're both, you know, it's blown the tournament. He lost to Tom Watson. I think it was in 77. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I blew my chance. So I had a one shot lead with um, about eight holes to go, seven holes to go. Mm. 23 victories around the world. Yeah. Nothing to sneeze at for you. Like, was there a, is there a best victory? Or is there such a thing as a, as a best? No, it, it's pretty hard to have a best. There's a lot of tournaments that I, I, I'm very proud that I won. Uh, Aussie, Aussie Open. Yeah, uh, at the Australian was fantastic, and that was um, later in your career too, wasn't it? Really, so I mean, it's, it's almost like 
yeah, it's the last win that I've had. Mm. Um, won the Scottish Open playing with Seve Ballesteros the week before the British Open in 91, which was pretty impressive. How was Seve to uh, play with? He was fantastic. He was a lovely man. And I had a lot of time, a lot of practice rounds with Seve. You know, he gave so much to Australian golf. And, um, you know, he, he's missed every every time you start talking about golf and put people that had charisma and, you know, really did a lot for golf. You know, he travelled the world and, um, you know, he was did, great. When you, when you, so you say you had a lot of practice rounds with him, do you learn much from those experiences and playing with the with the best players? Do they little, I mean, you said about Baker Finch and he said just watch people under pressure. Like, do you, do you try and pick up something from the very best in the world when you get to play with them? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you play your practice rounds with them. And, um, you know, I've played many around with Aletha Bell and Seve. And, um, you know, when we when I first got to Europe, we used to have a shootout. Uh, Ten players would play in over nine holes and you get one player to win a shootout. And it was an exhibition for the tournament, you know, for the spectators to come and watch it. And Seve would pick out the positions where the playoff would actually occur. So five guys made a par and four guys made bogey, they'd go off and have a chip off or a bunker shot. And Seve would pick the position and the shot. And if you couldn't play it, Seve would show you how to play it. Right. And, and he was he was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Was he the most fun? I mean, he, like he, obviously, um, you know, volatile and excitable. But, um, but was he the most, like who's the, who did you really yeah. love? Yeah, no, I used to love playing with Seve. He would always, I would lift my game playing with Seve. Mm. And later on in his career, when he didn't drive the ball as good, you know, he, he was frustrated in himself. He wasn't frustrated with the people he's playing with. He's only frustrated in himself that he couldn't do what he used to be able to do. Um, you know, other players I used to like playing with, Craig Stadler. Yeah. Um, I love playing with Stads. Yeah, yeah, you know, he would wear his heart on his shoulder, and he knew exactly what he's thinking. And yeah, you know, just a top fella. Um, you know, got on really well with Stads. And you know, so the what, majority of the golfers you do get on with. It's mm. only just one or two that you don't get on with, and those one or two you, you couldn't care less. Really, right? You just because it look. I mean, it, I mean, I've said this before. Who cares what I think? But there seems to be a fairly robotic, at it, um, not attitude, but manner of playing the game now where there's, I, I don't know, might, might be rose colored glasses about it just, it looked like more fun. And, you know, you just assumed you'd like sweating out beers afterwards and, Oh, wasn't it, you know? So the game's changing, I'm supposing. Yeah. The, the game is changing and it's probably the prize money that's doing it. Mm. Um, you know, because now all of a sudden these guys are playing for millions and millions of dollars. We had money to play for and, and you know, it was later on in the career when, when Tiger come along. Tiger brought in so much um, new sponsorship into golf that we didn't have. Uh, and it, it didn't really change the way we were. You know, we're always traveling. We're like gypsies. We, we're off traveling all over the world. And, you know, the Australians have always had something in common. You know, we're a long way from home. There was no internet back in, you know, the 90s and, <laughs> and it only later. And, yeah. You know, we come back one year and our prime minister wasn't even around. So <laughs> getting news from Australia was a lot harder. Yeah. Okay. So did you have a favourite tour? I mean, you had you sort of finished up more in, in Japan and you had that long stretch in America. I know you played a lot of, in Europe as well. Was there one somewhere that you liked playing more than anywhere else? 
I love playing Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, like, I look, I, I, I love playing all over the world. It, it didn't matter where I was playing. No matter where I was playing, I, I really did enjoy it. You know, in Europe, I played for four years. I won nearly a million pounds in four years. Yeah. Um, back back in the late eighties, and you know, I was very successful. Um, I think. And that's a that's a lot of money, isn't it? Like that's. I know you had yeah. a third and a fifth in the order of merit in the in Europe. So, like a like a million pounds is like, wow. You had a yeah, boats it, thing as well, didn't you? You had a fancy boats. I used to see pictures of you in a big bloody Marlin boats and things. Yeah, no, I I love my boats. Um, yeah. We one year I, I did finish third on the European tour, and uh, I I'd won quite a lot of money over there, and I'd won money in Japan and Australia and America and my wife and I went out to the eastern suburbs of Sydney and, and we're along New South Head Road and we're, I wanted to look at waterfronts and the real estate come out of the front of the, the water, of water the, uh, the office and said, you know, can I help you? And I said, well, look, you know, I'd like to see some waterfronts. And he looked me up and down and in my usual gear and T-shirts, shorts and thongs and uh, driving around in a $15,000 car and he said, you can't afford it. I thought, oh, that's okay. Went back to um, the inner west of Sydney and, and bought a property the next day. Right. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, he's lost. Right, so you believe him? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm not, I don't want to be in a place where I don't want to, where I'm not wanted. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. Hey, um, so to your health now. I mean, I know you've had, yeah. uh, well, you've pretty interesting. I mean, just sorry before we get to now. When you were playing, I have a memory that you lost weight, played, and then, you know, for obviously to, to keep your health good, and then you couldn't hit the ball as well, so you went, oh, stuff it, I'm just going to I'm gonna go back to how I was. Is that true? It's absolutely true. Uh, I lost probably 15 kilos, lost all my strength, lost all my feeling in my hands, and for a golfer, that's what you need to play, you know, chip shots, bunker shots, you know, feel your shots through the, the hitting irons or, or putting uh, and really didn't have that same feeling. And it wasn't until I got back to my playing weight of yeah. being a bit heavier uh, that my game come back and it was like, well, guess what pays the bills? Yeah, right. Good goal. So okay. I need to, to st stay with what I've got. And, um, you know, I was still healthy even though I was overweight. Yeah if you can be that way and um you know th that's that's what happened uh, there are a few other golfers that has happened to as well you know over the period of time david duvall you know he lost weight and all of a sudden his game went south yeah and, and never really played again um stadler did the same thing played you know heavier better golf um i suppose it's what your body's used to and what you you know the your swing path and all sorts of different things Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The way you feel over the ball, the way your arms actually drop down, mm. um, everything. So to, to last year, tell us um, what happened and, and how, you, how you're going. Uh, yeah, I had, like, we were in COVID and uh, we we're in lockdown and um, we we're actually out on my boat and I was coming in off the, um, back in the home and my wife and I, we're driving back in and I was writing on my uh, log and it was like a five-year-old and I said, look, I think I better go to the hospital. Uh, my hand's tingling. Went to the Monavale Hospital. That was when the Northern Beaches were in total lockdown. 
and they rushed me straight to the Royal North Shore and I'd had a stroke. Wow. And they put me through the ringer for three days, which was um, eye-opening. And they looked after me and uh, the do- doctors and nurses were absolutely amazing. Um, you know, we're lucky we live in Australia and able to, to get everything so that we can actually go ahead and live a normal life. I mean, I was really lucky with my stroke. All I got was a little bit of tingling in my hands. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I've changed my, my lifestyle as, as far as I walk nearly every single day and um, eat properly and do all the right things. And, you know, so I want to be around for my, my grandchildren, uh, which only arrives. He's only a year old. So oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So do you, did, did, in the three days in hospital, did you really have a sort of, I, I guess, a chance to really sort of think about your own mortality? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, Jenny and, and the kids couldn't come into the hospital because we're in, they're in the northern beaches in lockdown. The only one that could come in there was my son, Ryan, who was at Five Dock, and because he was out of the area, he could come into oh, the yeah, hospital right. any yeah. once. And, um, you know, he put some clothes in because I had nothing with me. I went to the Monteville Hospital and all of a sudden I'm in an ambulance going to Royal North Shore. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that was not very good for him to see, you know, leads and everything coming out of me and, you know, this is dad in hospital. So. Mm. And I was fortunate um, to, to get out of there on the 23rd of December and have Christmas at home, even though no one could come to the, the house and... <laughs> You know, my Christmas present was I was out of hospital. And yeah, right. So I've, I've had a, a wake-up call Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm making the most of it. Good. I'm glad that's worked out. And so the the new thing now, I mean, in the as I said before we started chatting, I was, you know, giving you a good old-fashioned Google and um, I see you last played in America in 2017 and you're hitting the ball I wrote it down and said 200 and still averaging 270. There must be 270 yards. So you're still eating it. I, I, could, I could say metres, but they were yards. Nowadays it's feet. Good point. Um, so I'm guessing you're still playing, but it's more about course development now, isn't it? Course design. Yeah, I've hardly played. I really haven't had the chance to um, with my golf course design. And, and that's really taken off. Um, I, I've done a golf course up at Teven uh, with a, a friend of mine, and it's turned out absolutely amazing. It's got platypus in the river. Uh, it's really unique golf course at Teven. It's about okay, so where's Teven? Ballina. It's about ten minutes out of Ballina in the hinterland, and okay. it's absolutely beautiful. And, and the golf course uh, we've got um, only nine holes, and we've got eight bunkers on the whole golf course. And uh, it, it's a lot of fun to play for good players as well as players just starting out. And, uh, you know, it, it's pretty exceptional. And, and a lot of the, the supers have actually gone there. And that's how I've got a lot of my work. They've gone there and seen it and said, well, look, you know, we want you to do something at our place. So that, that worked into all the different golf courses that I'm at, like Tung Curry, Foster, uh, Hawk's Nest, Port Kembla, Bayview, Palm Beach. Um, Are you doing Palm Road. Beach as well? So Palm yeah, Beach is tiny. Palm. <laughs> yeah, so I've done seven of the ten greens up there yeah. and uh, we've only got another three greens to go. So they'll go in next year. And that was with a grant from the government to have wheel, wheelchair accessibility for golfers. 
Okay. So they can go and play there. And we've got from 25 bunkers down to five bunkers and being able to get out and play the golf course. Okay. And the good players were a little bit worried that I was going to make it too easy. And now all of a sudden the holes have opened up. They realize you can make it difficult with having yeah. no bunkers. And uh, the bunkers are in there for a reason. Don't go in this area. How do you manage um, people's expectations for what you're going to do to their golf course? Because it is a, it is a genuine concern for lots of clubs that they're, 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 their clientele, their members, are not going to be happy with. Well, what you've got to do as, as an architect, you've got to realise the members join that golf, club's golf course because they, they like it. Hmm. It would be really foolish to go in as an architect and go and change it too much. And that's what you have to be really mindful of, that you're not making change for the sake of making change. You really have to improve it. And a lot of the golf courses haven't been improved, and that was what used to really annoy the crap out of me. You know, the golf courses would change. They spent a lot of money, haven't improved it, and it's made it worse for the members. And mm. that would drive me absolutely nuts. And I won't name names, but there's a lot of golf courses that have done it and spent a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I always say, well, look, if you're going to make change to the golf course, make sure they're better. Yeah, it's the master plan. <laughs> yeah. I love it going to a golf course and they go, we should show you our master plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is some golf courses actually do need a master plan. Yeah, of course. But... They, they have got no direction and they might be, uh, a, they might be a, a lawyer, they might be a butcher, they might be mm. a carpenter. They've got no idea on what a golf course is. To me, a golf course is uh, looked after by the superintendent, has to have a really good relationship with the general manager and the captain. And if everyone's doing their job, they should just say to the super, look, get the golf course really good at this time of the year because we want to play our championships and we want to play another time of the year. Go and do your job. And they shouldn't interfere in the running of the golf course. Yeah, the, the supers would go off and do all their tape courses and get all the knowledge. You know, we've got a lot of good supers that do a lot of good work, and you know, being involved over the last few years and spending a lot of time with them, you know, more um, power needs to be given to the supers to do the job that they need to do. Okay, I should maybe put that out as a, <laughs> it's a put that well, put out at the general the golf is general managers conference and see how that goes. <laughs> It'd be hilarious. No, it was. It, the thing is, the general managers, they look after the golf course. Yeah. Uh, sorry, they look after the clubhouse. And if they put someone in uh, the, the role of being a superintendent, they should know that they know what they're doing. Mm. And the, a good general manager won't even interfere in, in the in the golf course at all. Yeah. What do you think about the state of golf? I mean, it was three years ago. It was everyone was this game's gone and and now it's 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 crazy is that that's exciting for you oh absolutely yeah you know we've got a lot of good young talent coming through um at the moment we haven't got any tournaments to play in australia other than the australian open at the end of the year we might get a pga hmm. um but being the borders closed you know not a lot can really happen until everyone gets vaccinated and we knock this COVID on the, on the top of its head and, you know, try and get back to a little bit more normal life. Um, until that happens, you know, professional golf in Australia is really going to struggle. Okay. For the amateurs, what's the, 
for, well, for all of us, before we leave the game of golf, what's something that we should experience, do you think, you know, like that really set our sights on to, to do and, and so we can leave this game going, I was a golfer? Um, go and play as many different golf courses as you can. And, and that way you, you can actually get a lot more knowledge about, you know, your own game, but also help out the economy in Australia, other golf clubs. You know, if you go and play another golf course, that's $30, $50 that they wouldn't have otherwise. And, um, you know, not, not to mention the money going into the towns that you visit. If golfers can go and travel and actually play, they can bring a lot of enjoyment to everyone, um, not only golf clubs, but the towns themselves. Yeah. And and for you, I know you said you're, you're really too busy to play, but when you do play, do you still do you still get a kick out of it? I do. Um I do get a kick out of it, but I, I can't be bothered going and practicing to, to try and improve <laughs> because the amount of practice I'd have to do would be a lot and I'm not going to improve that much. So right. I might as well not worry about that part of it. So what would you play off now? I mean, would you still be a scratch? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably be scratch. Um, and does, and do, I, you get, probably, sorry, do, do you get sad when you hit that? But when you do play and you don't play well, do you? Like, oh, God, I used to be Craig Barry. <laughs> nah, nah, look, if you don't practice, you don't have that right to actually get pissed off with yourself. Mm. Um, and that's what's funny when I watch other people play or young kids play and they hit a poor shot and they get upset with their shot. I figure you haven't practiced hard enough to actually get upset with your the shot you just hit. You need to go and practice and then you can get upset with the shot you hit. Right. I think I think that might be one of the best things I've ever heard about the game of golf. So we'll, if you don't practice, you don't have the right to get angry with yourself. Absolutely. Great advice. Hey, Craig, a real pleasure to chat with you and thanks very much for your time. It's, it's great to see you and, and I'm thrilled that you've got over your, um, your medical hurdle so quickly and, and you're still with us and, and doing great things for golf. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for your time as well and thanks for everything you do for golf. No, I just, I just talk about it. There he is, Craig Parry. How good. What a brilliant and generous human being. Like one of the great stalwarts of Australian golf, one of our most successful golfers, and very good of him to give up his time and, and talk on the, um, on the Zoom and uh, I'm almost embarrassed, well, I am embarrassed to not ask him about the defeat of Tiger in the President's Cup, but maybe we should leave something for next time. So if you get a chance, check out his, uh, his website and, and look at the coursework he's doing and experience for yourself. Wakehurst, um, Foster Tunkari, Palm Beach, and that shorter Tebbin course up in northern New South Wales. And of course, there are many, many others. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, hit subscribe, share it with your friends, and uh, and I'll see you next time for something um, completely different. Or maybe it'll be a little bit similar. Who knows? It's golf. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 